0: I read an interesting re- report this week. I don't know whether anybody else read it, uh, but it was uh, on the internet, and it said that in 2018, the UK reported the highest levels of happiness since 2011. These are official statistics. They're collected by the o- Office of National Statistics in Newport, uh, and they, are, they were gathered together to measure the UK's happiness quotient, Okay. And these well-being figures show that people are, despite all of the Brexit and uh, political turmoil and the uncertainty of the future, we're pretty happy in the UK. That's what it said. So it scored people. People were asked on a survey, I don't know who these people are that do these surveys, but these people were asked to do a survey, and, they've, and the statistics came back. Seven, seven and a half out of ten is how we score for happiness in this country. Seven and a half, uh, sorry, seven and a half for happiness, 7.7 out of 10 for satisfaction in life. And then conversely, when they asked you about how anxious you were, the score, we gave a score across the country, we are 2.9 out of 10 anxious about life. So there we are. So we are supposedly a happy nation. If you look up the happiness quotient and how we compare to nations around the world, we are 19th in the happiness league table out of 150 countries. So there you go, Hannah. Are you happy? Okay, not that happy. Great. Well, oh. She's the 1%, or she falls into that less than happy category. Well, And the Office of National Statistics in this report gave some contributing factors, and they talked about uh, three things that make people happy, their feelings of job security and the opportunities of levels of employment being at a record high, generally the satisfaction to do with our health, and then the quality of our relationships. That is the key one, they said. So ask yourself a question this morning. If you were to do uh, a survey for the Office of National Statistics, how would you score your happiness quotient out of 10? All right. Maybe that's something you could do with your family over lunch this morning or this afternoon. How would you score yourself out of 10? 7 out of 10? 8 out of 10? 9 out of 10? 3 out of 10? And I would say... That probably if we polled everybody in the room, most of us, would, we would probably come back with a similar kind of uh, correlation between happiness and our relationships. Particularly if we're married, there would be probably a correlation between how happily we are as married people and how happy our lives are. And this morning we reach a part in First Peter where God is addressing us on our marriages. Okay, is God interested in our marriages? Yes, okay, and he's also interested in our happiness. And so he's put together in his word the secret for a happy marriage so that you can have a happy life. Now, singles don't check out, got some stuff for you as well, but we're going to address the topic of marriage. Because God has hidden the secret of a happy marriage in his word. And it's not more money, it's not better sex, it's not clearer communication, it's not effective strategies for conflict resolution or date night, good as those things are. Okay, The secret to a happy marriage is holiness. And it's going to be found in our text this morning. Now, often when we think about marriage, we want, just fix my spouse for me. Don't we fix them, help them, so that our life will be better together? And we're after short-term happiness for uh, for what we can get now. Uh, and God comes and He says, actually, if you want long-term happiness, you need to focus on long-term holiness. And so God is interested in our marriages. And this morning, through these few verses that we're going to read, we're going to see how God is going to nurture godly husbands and holy wives. So I'm going to read verses one to six, and then I'm going to make a few more comments in a moment. Well, no, let me make those comments first instead of reading. Okay, there's a temptation when we get to things like this, especially if you're single, uh, that you just kind of switch off because this doesn't concern me. Uh, And let me just say this. This week, we're going to address wives. So we're only going to cover the first six verses. And all of the husbands get to listen in, and they're going, great, great. Lovely. Next week, we're going to cover the husbands, and all the wives get to listen in. Then in a few weeks' time, we're going to cover what God has to say about singles, and everybody will get to listen. So although this morning God is addressing wives and married women, there is much here for single ladies. So all the single ladies, okay, as Beyonce called you, all the single ladies, there is much here to describe the kind of woman that God wants you to be especially if you want to get married one day, okay? Single guys, someone's preaching for me over there. Single guys, there is much here that describes the kind of thing that you should look for in a wife. Most of us, when we were single, probably had a checklist of things we wanted in our wives, or Peter's going to give it here. Husbands, there is much for us this morning because this is how we know what to pray for for our wives. And if you're a dad with daughters, much for you this morning because you want this will tell us how we want to raise our daughters so that they might be godly women and maybe one-day wives. There's something for everybody, okay? Now, also, in our contemporary culture, uh, a straightforward re- reading and application of this passage is becoming increasingly unpopular and even in the church. Pastors in, often can be misunderstood as... Uh, advocating something that's degrading to women or even dangerous to women. And it's an archaic view that's not fit for the modern world. And often the hearers of passages like this are suspicious about what's going to be said. And our hearts can get hard and sometimes closed off to the truth and the value of God's word. So my prayer is, please, 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 don't close off our hearts. Don't check out because there's something here for everybody. We all share the same problem with submission, and the problem is, we don't like authority. We don't like someone to tell us what to do. And here we find God's words on submission to us. He's going to tell us what to do, not me this morning. But the, the trouble with coming to passages like this is that our sinful hearts and the world around us bombard us with lies that tell us that if we believe the things that the Bible tells us, then we're asking women to be inferior or we're setting back the cause of women's rights in centuries. So don't listen, don't do it. But as Christians, we do believe, I hope you believe this morning, I certainly believe that God is good, all good, all knowing, all wise, and all loving. And his word is the same. It's wise, it's good, and it's loving. And it comes to us from a heavenly father who knows what is best for us. So please have open ears. Let's pray, and then we'll read. I'll pray first today. Gracious heavenly father, we ask you that now you would give us ears to hear that we might receive your word. That we would do more than just sit and endure a sermon for 30 or 40 minutes but that we would actually hear the voice of God and that we would all be encouraged and built up and challenged and changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verses one to six. It is usually a unit in verses uh, that goes right through verse seven, but as I say, we're pausing at verse six. Here's what Peter says. Here's what God says. Likewise. So in light of everything that I've already said, from verse 11 and 12, "'Wives, married ladies, "'be submissive to your own husbands, "'so that even if some do not obey the word, "'they may be won without a word "'by the conduct of their wives "'when they see your respectful and pure conduct. "'Do not let your adorning be external, "'the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, "'or the putting on of clothing.'" But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. God's word to us. So what does a godly wife look like? What does a godly wife look like? Three things that Peter's going to tell us this morning. He's going to tell us about the actions of a godly wife, the adornment of a godly wife, and the attitude of a godly wife. Three things, three A's. Okay, first thing, the Actions of a godly wife. Now, as I already said, in verses 11 and 12, he begins this ethical section based on the theological section, explaining how those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how we're now to live. Uh, in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. And so he's been going through, if you remember, verse 13, how we're to submit to state and civil authorities. Verse 18, how we're to submit to our employers. And now in verse 1 of chapter 3, he gets to wives. Wives, be subject or submissive to your own husbands. So first clarification, it's not all women be subject and submissive to all and any men. It's to your own husband. Don't miss that. To your own husband. Be subject and submissive to your own husband, not to all and any men. Uh, and now, he doesn't really say anything else about submission. And we know from other places in Scripture, particularly like Ephesians chapter 5, uh, where f- submission is further detailed, that wives are called to submit to their own husbands as, as the church submits to Christ. Now, although not a lot is said about submission, In the Scriptures, it is an essential part of living marriage for the glory of God, and it is something that both Peter and Paul emphasize in their letters. Now, why? Why do they emphasize it so much? Well, because in addressing submission and addressing the husbands in terms of leadership and love, the apostles are particularly getting to the sinful inclinations of human beings, whether they be male or female. So just for a moment, go with me back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember back in the garden, uh, uh, Adam and Eve sinned. And as a result of the fall, as a result of their sin, there are now two ways in which men fall off the wagon of obedience to God's word when it comes to leadership and being a husband. We either fall off, usually, or or, or on one of these two sides. Either we abdicate our responsibility and our leadership, and we, uh, whether it be because of laziness or because of weakness, we abdicate, we decide... uh, maybe not even consciously, but usually is we decide we, we, just, we don't want to lead. It's too much trouble. It's too much hard work. It's too much responsibility. And so we become a little bit like a doormat. We get walked all over. Uh, uh, the, the ladies in our lives just rule the roost because we've got no strength, no backbone, no spiritual maturity. We abdicate our responsibility. We say, enough of this. I don't want to do it. Or we fall off the other side into being a dictator, And a dominator. And we strut around like Randy, the macho man, Savage. Do you remember him from uh, wrestling? American wrestling in the 90s? No? Pat does. Great. Thank you, Pat. He was, right, just go home and Google Randy Macho Man Savage and you will realize he was a, a dominating figure. He was going around, he was bossing people, he was domineering, he was dominating. And we can, so we fall off the wagon. Either we're like the Mr. Muscle, you know, of, remember the TV advert, Mr. Muscle, the weedy, wimpy guy? who was doing the cleaning in the housework, or we're like Randy the Macho Savage. We we have a tendency, a sinful inclination, to fall off either side. And so Peter and Paul come and they say, Men, you need teaching on loving and cherishing and understanding your wives. Now, wives, on the other hand, as a result of the fall... uh, The sinful inclination is to try and usurp your husband's authority and leadership and claim for yourself something that God doesn't intend for you to have. And so he comes and he says, the unique instruction that wives need is to submit to their husbands. And so in verses 1 and 2, we have Peter's call to all wives to submit to their own husbands. And then he elaborates what he means by pointing to the hardest possible test case that a wife could have. Now it's easy to submit to your husband if he walks on water, and he brings you breakfast in bed every day, and he brings you your favourite fresh flowers every week, and he's just so simply wonderful in every way. But what if your husband is not like that? After all, there's only a few of us like that around, you know. So, what if your husband is a sinner? And? She- what if your husband what if your husband isn't even a christian then what do you do well peter tells us here in verse 2 verse 1 be submissive to your own husbands even if they don't obey the word and both of those things sinners and unbelievers captured in that don't obey the word that they may be one without a word by the submissive conduct of their wives. You see, it would be easy to ignore, neglect, resist, usurp, or even abandon your husband. But here, in even the most difficult case, Peter calls wives to submit to their husbands. Even if they're not believers, and he's using the, argue, the argument of greater to the lesser. If a wife can, is even called to submit to a husband who isn't an, a believer, then heck, you girls in the church, you can submit to your husbands, surely Even if they're sinners. And then he gives the reason so that God may use a wife's humble and godly and loving and supportive behavior to change her husband's willingness to hear the gospel and be saved if they're an unbeliever. But I think the principle holds true in a husband's sanctification as well as his salvation. So maybe the application this morning for you ladies is if you're frustrated by your husband's lack of maturity... If you're disappointed by his incompetence or his willingness to lead, the temptation is either to go rogue, assert yourself, lead independently of him and resist and refuse any leadership that he brings, or to overstep the mark. I think this is perhaps where some of us fall down. That in our zeal to think we've got to change our husband into a holy man, we make him a project. And we say, I have bought him a John Piper book. Every birthday and Christmas, since we've got married, in the hope that it will rub off. And it's not. Or we treat them like a child. Or we oppress them with endless disapproval and nagging. And we behave like his mother instead of his wife. And none of these things produce the fruit that we hope for. It's a little bit like Aesop's fables. Remember this? It should come up on the screen. The wind and the sun, they were disputing who was the strongest. And suddenly they saw a traveler coming down the road, and the sun said, Listen, I see a way to decide our dispute. Whichever, us, whichever of us can cause the traveler to take off his cloak shall be regarded as the stronger, so you go first. So the sun retired behind a cloud, and the wind began to blow as hard as it could upon the traveler. But the harder the wind blew, the more closely the traveler wrapped his cloak around him, till at last the wind had to give in in despair. Then the sun came out and shone in all of the glory that it had upon the traveller, who soon found that it was too hot to walk with his cloak on. I'm pretty sure that Aesop based his fable on the advice of Peter in verse 2. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Live submissive, productive, Jesus-focused, God-honoring, gospel-empowered lives of patience and grace and faith and hope and love trusting that God would use that to bring your husband to repentance and change as he sees, he observes, the transforming power of the gospel in your own life. Now, we don't often talk about submission at church much to the... Uh, to the contrary of what you might think. We don't preach these passages very often. So let me just take the opportunity to talk a little bit for the next few minutes about what submission isn't and what it is to hopefully clear up misconceptions and misunderstandings and misapplications that I think are rife in the Christian world. Nowhere do Peter, Paul, Jesus, or any other biblical author ever teach that women are inferior to men. Just, you just will not find that in your Bible. They're not inferior to men intellectually or spiritually. They're not more prone to wickedness, which ironically was those three things, was the prevailing view of the culture that Peter was writing into. The men of Peter's day did think that women were inferior intellectually, that they were spiritually substandard, and that they were more prone to wickedness. So the New Testament is countercultural both then and now. Because it teaches that men and women are equally created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26, 27. That men and women have equal access to the salvation that Christ provides, Galatians 3, 28. And actually, if you read in verse 7 of our own passage, they have, we share the same destiny. If you look at it, he says, we are heirs, co-heirs, joint heirs of the grace of life. We are made in the image of God equally. We have salvation equally, access to salvation equally, and we share the same destiny. So thinking about those things, submission does not mean that it's not a call for wives to be timid and fearful, that you are supposed to be seen and not heard. It's nonsense. It does not mean that we give up independent thoughts. It does not mean that you give up trying to influence And help your husband. In fact, Peter encourages that. We've just seen it in verse 2. Submission does not mean that you always agree with your husband and what he says. And you do not have the right to speak up or speak out against him. To challenge him, advise him, debate him or present a different opinion. Or a point of view or a course of action that you think your family should take. Submission is not if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Jesus Christ. That you do as he says. Submission is not if your husband asks you to indulge in sinful behavior or makes ungodly demands of you, that you just blindly oblige him and do what he says. We know from all that Scripture teaches that God is ultimate, not man of any kind. And so our submission to man, governments, employers, and husbands is limited. Submission does not mean that if your husband is unfaithful to you, that you are somehow trapped in the relationship without any biblical recourse. And submission does not mean that if your husband physically abuses you or abandons you through incessant verbal humiliation, that you must remain trapped and just accept the cruelty that he dishes out daily to you. Now, to be sure, some men, Even Christian men have abused, sinfully abused, the authority that God gives us and have twisted the scriptures on leadership and submission for their own wicked ends, and we must not stand for that. But we, at the same time, we must not allow mishandling and misabuse and uh, the abuse that we see in other places, or maybe we've experienced ourselves, to silence God's words. It's still true even if sinful men have twisted it. And let me just say this as well. Now, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular here this morning, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but I want to say this publicly so that it goes on the record. If you are a woman in this church, and you ever, both now or into the future, ever find yourself in an abusive relationship where your husband is abusing you, get help Immediately. Come and see one of us. Go to the appropriate authorities. Do not think that submission means silence. And if you are a woman who just has a question about anything that you hear this morning that's around the edges of this text, come and talk to Claire, come and talk to June, go and talk to Lizzie. They will be able to help you in an effort to think clearly about your situation. Uh, And it's always wise and biblical and appropriate and honorable to ask questions, to get help in these areas. It's important. So I hope that makes the point. That's, that's on the record now. Uh, we want women to get help. Submission is not silence. In fact, submission in marriage is freely given by the wife, not forcibly demanded by the husband. If you notice the command in verse 1. It's not, husbands, see to it that your wife submits to you. It's not. It's wives. Freely, graciously, genuinely, intelligently, out of your own accord, obey God by submitting to your own husband. That's how Peter wants us to understand it. Now, what is submission? Well, John Piper is the most helpful man on this that I have read. And he just gives this wonderful one-sentence view of submission. It's the God-given calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and so carry it through according to the gifts that God has given to her. Brilliant. The God-given calling of a wife to affirm and honor her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to the gifts that he has given her to her. What you'll notice in Peter and in Paul really is they put the principle out there but they don't make qualifiers. They don't give examples. They just say here's what wives are to do. The principle is to be upheld, it's to be embraced, it's to be cherished and treasured and applied because and they don't give qualifiers and they don't give examples, I think, because they're giving room for husbands and wives to work out the principles of leadership and submission And how they're to be expressed in their marriage in the numerous and the various ways of words and deeds and thoughts and actions of everyday living. So they're holding out the principle that is to be treasured and applied for the glory of God. Now, if you want to talk more about this, we don't have time for it. So you can just come around and talk to Claire and me one day or Pete and June or Matt and Lizzie. And we would be happy to talk to you, answer your questions, try and help you along. But that's the actions of a godly wife. Call to submit. Now, you will have noticed I've spent 25 minutes on that. The next two are shorter, I promise. Okay, and the second one is this the adornment of a godly wife. Shockingly, perhaps, God loves beautiful women. And God wants women to be beautiful and attractive for their husbands. Guys are going, great, I love him. I'm going to put extra money in the offering this week. And you can, that's fine. Uh, But verses 3 and 4 tell us the kind of beauty that God is after. Peter's culture, much like our own, was obsessed with physical beauty and appearance. Women were under enormous pressure to look beautiful for the culture and for their husbands. And things really have only got worse over the 2,000 years since Peter wrote. The pressures of TV and magazines and billboards and internet and particularly social media has set about to define and to display beauty in a particular kind of way. That leads to enormously unhealthy pressures on girls and ladies. And, And the comparison of yourself in the mirror to what you see on the page or the screen, leaves many women feeling like they never measure up. They're not pretty enough. They're never thin enough. They don't have the desired skin or hair or figure that they need. And so women, I think, not being one, feel inferior. Perhaps you feel ugly and unlovable because you don't, think that you match up to what the world says is beauty. Well, leading the charge against the cultural pressure is God's word. Because here, although the the world puts a high price tag on designer labels and jewelry and cosmetics and hairstyles, God values a beauty of a different kind. You see it in verse 3 and 4? Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You see that? A different kind of beauty. Not external and perishable, but internal and eternal. It's not that God is against physical beauty. Heck, he created it. God is not, as well, he's not calling Christian women to make yourselves as ugly as possible. And all the men said, amen. No, what God is interested in is he doesn't want us to be primarily concerned, ladies, with fading beauty. He doesn't want your focus to be on beauty or your definition of beauty, to be that which the world tells us is beautiful, but instead what his word tells us is beautiful. If If you like, he wants you to get dressed from the inside out. He wants you to understand true beauty, which he defines here as a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, gentle and quiet spirit gets a bad rap in the church as well. Okay, it's been grossly misunderstood and taken to mean something that Peter and God never ever intended for it to mean. Often it is put forward that gentle and quiet spirit requires women to go through a personality transplant. And so, if you are extroverted and dynamic and talkative and humorous and enthusiastic and loud, you now need to dress in a Laura Ashley skirt. And cut the level of your volume down by many, many decibels. And be a woman who is seen and not heard. A weak and feeble creature who just languishes in the background of her mighty husband. Let me just say one word to that. Nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. The words here, gentle and quiet, have definitions that might surprise you this morning. Let me explain. The word gentle actually is meek. It's the word meek, and it's a characteristic of Jesus himself. You read it in Matthew 11 and Matthew 21, and it's something that Jesus calls all of his disciples, male, female, married, or single, to cover themselves with. Matthew 5, verse 5, Sermon on the Mount. He's calling for men and women to be meek. Now, the Greek word for meek is borrowed from a military term, and it's to do with training horses. And I found this commentator uh, speak about meekness that's called for here in 1 Peter, and I thought this was really helpful, so I thought I'd share it with you. He says this, The Greek army would find the wildest horses in the mountains and bring them in to be broken in. After months of training, they sorted the horses into categories. Some were discarded, Some were broken and made useful for bearing burdens. Some were useful for ordinary duty. And the fewest of all graduated as war horses. When a horse passed the conditioning required for a war horse, it was stated as praeus, which is the Greek word for meek. The war horse had power under authority. Strength under control. A warhorse never ceased to be determined and strong and passionate. However, it learned to bring its nature under discipline. It gave up being wild and unruly and out of control and rebellious. A warhorse learned to bring that nature under control so that it would now respond to the slightest touch of the rider, stand in the face of cannon fire, thunder into battle, and stop at a whisper. That Is meek. That's what Peter's talking about here. When he calls women to gentleness, to meekness, a woman with a steel like strength. Now, not pushy or self-assertive, not demanding and unruly and rebellious and wanting her own way, but a steel-like strength married with compassion that looks to others and exercises a willingness to lay down her own life and her own rights for other people. It's meekness. It's being like Jesus. Then quiet. Oh, well, we think we understand quiet means shut up. No, it doesn't. The word here, quiet, it would be better translated calm or peaceable. It's, uh, another commentator says the Greek word would, was actually used to explain the opposite of something. And so they would say, do not engage in creating the loudness of war, but be quiet. So the, it's the opposite of creating the loudness of war. So it means being teachable, being peaceable, not being contentious and hot-headed and argumentative and quarrelsome, but just calm, peaceful, entreatable. The Bible kind of puts a different spin on gentle and quiet when you understand it the way it's supposed to, doesn't it? And Peter's exhortation here is not Shame on you women for being so vain. I bet you think this sermon is about you. You're so vain. No, Peter's exhortation is here. Ladies, listen, God has wired you for beauty. He's wired you for beauty. Whether that be in art or home or cooking or baking or how you look or what you're interested in. He's wired women for beauty. So take that instinct for pursuing beauty. And put it to work in gaining true beauty. The imperishable beauty of a submissive, gentle, and quiet spirit. For this is precious to God. So ladies, just ask yourself a question. What what kind of beauty are you most concerned about? Because I would think most ladies... Most ladies, not saying everybody, but most ladies, perhaps, you would never ever think of leaving the house without at least some attention to what you look like. You remember to put clothes on as the kind of bare minimum, right? We're concerned about what we look like. We put clothes on. We might do our hair. We might put on a bit of makeup. We might brush our teeth. We spend time concerned about what we look like. Some of us, not looking at anybody in particular, uh, spend hours on websites and shopping for clothes and shoes and handbags and accessories and cosmetics. And we regularly attend the local nail bar or the hairdressers. And we take time to get ready if we're going out. And that's all good. But if you would leave your house without picking up your Bible in the morning or without a word of prayer, or without turning your attention to the inner life of your heart, then maybe, just maybe, we need to reassess our priorities. Ask yourself these kind of questions. What's most striking about me, my mascara or my meekness? What am I most known for, being the lady with the lovely lips or the lady with the lovely life? And by lovely, I mean godly. What do you want people to remember about you when they walk away from an interaction with you? Your heels or your heart? Your clothes or your character? Single guys, is true beauty, as Peter defines it here, what you are looking for in a potential wife? Or are we searching for fleeting beauty that passes with age? Or are we looking for a woman who's going to be like a good red wine? That her true beauty ages well with time? Husbands, Is this what we're praying for our wives? Or are we saying, Lord, please let the wrinkle cream work? Amen. Amen. uh, It came from Sandra, so I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) Fathers, what kind of beauty do we want our daughters to pursue? True beauty or fleeting beauty? What are we teaching our sons to look for? Let's make sure that our hearts are in tune with God's heart here. What does he say in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7? He says, The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Let's make sure our adornment of a godly woman and wife is of true beauty. Thirdly and finally, the attitude of a godly wife. These are verses 5 and 6. Peter calls the women of his day and he calls the women of our day to model themselves on God-fearing, God-hoping women of the Old Testament who entrusted themselves to God and adorned themselves with submission to their husbands. And he gives the example of Sarah, who was Abraham's wife. She's really the perfect choice because you read about Sarah in the Old Testament and you'll find out, A, she was, she was uh, considered physically beautiful, Genesis 12. And B, she wasn't a wallflower, Genesis 18. She, was a, she is portrayed in the Scriptures as a real-life woman of faith and life. okay. But she's also portrayed as a woman who, order, who adorned herself with a gentle and quiet spirit as she submitted to her husband Abraham, even in uncertain, even in unpleasant, even in dangerous situations. Now, Peter references a time in Sarah's life where she called Abraham Lord. That's in Genesis 18, verses 9 to 14. You can find it. It's worth reading sometime. And he draws attention to two aspects of her attitude that our wives should portray and pursue. First one is this, Sarah Obeyed Abraham. Now, perhaps you're sitting there as a wife and you're going, woohoo, back up, back up, obeyed. I'm going to settle for submit. That's as far as I'm going this morning. Well, listen, obedience is here that is spoken about. It's not the same as what we demand of our children. Okay? It's saying something like this. Okay? Let me give you an example. It's probably easiest. If you are faced as a husband and wife with a hard decision, there should always be dialogue. Husbands should not just come and say, hey, honey, I have decided what we are doing. We're moving to Scotland. And I'm going to be a bin cleaner. And the kids are going to boarding school. And you can't argue. Okay, there should always be some kind of talking, praying, lots of back and forth, give and take, push and pull. As a wife has every opportunity to bring her point of view and give input, and uh, discuss it back and forth, and and sleep on it, and come again, and talk about it, and go around the houses, and listen to all, and make lists and pros and cons, and all of that should be involved in making hard choices. But in those rare moments where we reach an impasse. And when push comes to shove, the wife says, okay, I will follow you as you follow the Lord. And together, we will work this out. But I'm going to give you the last word on it. That's what Sarah did. Then she also called him Lord, which I quite like, <laughs> to be honest. Some translations, sir or master, but actually better it would be, this is one This is one area where the message translation gets it right. My dear husband. That's what she calls him. My dear husband. It's a term that conveys affection and respect whilst also acknowledging his authority. And actually in Genesis 18, Sarah says it when Abraham isn't around. Oh, my goodness. What sort of husband? would a stranger think that you had if all they had to go on was what they heard you say about him when he wasn't around? Think about that. Now, don't get hung up on the term and miss the attitude that God wants us to imitate here, an attitude of affection and respect. But also don't miss the other part of her attitude, which is that she was a woman who hoped in God. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Sarah placed her hope in God. She didn't place her hope in herself or her own prowess. She didn't place her hope in her husband. She didn't place her hope in her children. She didn't place her hope in the latest cultural wisdom that she picked up off the TV or from a self-help book or a podcast or a newspaper. She didn't hope in the advice that she received from her girlfriends over coffee. She did not even put her hope in the latest Christian marriage book or sermon. She put her hope in God. She submitted herself to God. She hoped in God, which was displayed in her submission to her husband. See, Sarah trusted God to ultimately keep her, to sustain her, to protect her, to guide her, to care for her, to vindicate her, to reward her. And so Peter wants to say, I think this morning to us, how we, how you ladies treat your husband is a measure of how much you hope in God. And Peter says, you show yourself to be a daughter of Sarah, verse 6, if you do what Sarah did. If you are a genuine woman of faith and hope in God, it'll come out by doing what Sarah did. What did she do? She submitted to Abraham. She didn't submit to him to satisfy her husband's vanity. She didn't submit to him to parade her own virtue or godliness. She didn't submit to him to avoid conflict. She didn't submit to him to impress her friends or neighbors. She didn't submit to him to manipulate her husband or even just because she thought it was a wise course of action. She submitted because she hoped in God. It was an act of worship. And she hoped in God because she knew she needed God's help. For who is a wife enough here this morning to live this way without the life and heart and desires and power that come again from hoping in God and being born again to a living hope? Through Jesus Christ. Who here could live this way without the forgiveness that comes through being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Who could do this without the presence and power and help of the Holy Spirit who is given to each wife who has been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ? Thanks be to God that he has born you uh, again, to that living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that now you as a wife and a woman can live a gospel transformed, gospel empowered life as a wife who hopes in God every day of their life. So let me encourage you. Hope in God this morning. Even if your husband is a jerk. Even if he is a sinner. Even if he's not a Christian. Hope in God. God is interested in our marriages. He is concerned about our happiness and he is concerned about our holiness. And there's nothing quite like marriage to reveal what a great savior we need and there's nothing quite like marriage to show what a great savior we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your grace and goodness to us. We thank you that though your word is sometimes hard, it can meld soft hearts who want to respond to you in faithfulness and obedience and joy. Lord, we thank you for all of the wives in the room. They are precious gifts to each husband. And even though we have focused on the wife, let the husband give thanks this morning for his wife and be more aware of the evidences of grace in her life than where she needs to change. And may she be also aware of the grace of God at work in her heart and in her life. That would empower and motivate her to change. Lord, for all of us this morning, as we've considered your word, whether we be single women, single guys, married, husbands... Our fathers, Lord, we pray that you would help us to retain that which you want us to retain so that we might apply your word, even though it may not necessarily speak directly to us. And we pray that much fruit would be born in the strengthening of our marriages for the glory of Jesus' name.